Many people seem to prefer application to instruction. I was never good at algebra. And by the way, sorry teachers, I haven't used it. (laughs) Made it this far. Somebody told me, I think it was my granddaughter actually, made it another day, didn't use algebra. So... I didn't understand algebra because I kept asking why, and I never had a teacher tell me why. I had, I, what I got was it's a rule. Just memorize the rule and do the rule. And that was all application. I wanted the instruction. I wanted to know why. But when I was teaching school, I learned that there was a lot of... Most of my students, in fact, just wanted the, the, the application. They didn't want the instruction. Hardly a day would go by when I was teaching when some student didn't raise their hand and say, is this going to be on the test? They just wanted to know what they had to know for the test. They didn't want to know why. They didn't want to know all the information leading up to it. But for me, it was more important that my students learned why the things that I was teaching them were true as opposed to just parroting back answers on an exam. I wanted to make sure they were affected by what I was teaching, not just able to recall the facts. For instance, when I was teaching Bible, it was more important to me that my students understood why Concepts like justification or sanctification or redemption were important in their lives and how that was to affect their life, not just the the definition of those words. I was more interested in their ability to identify how it affected them, how it was to change their life rather than a definition. Those students who asked, is this going to be on the test, revealed to me that they were they were not really interested in understanding why. They were not really interested in understanding how these things affect them. They were interested in passing the test so they could graduate high school and go on to college or just get out of high school. They wanted to skip the why and go straight to the so what. So here's the why. They don't care about the why. Just tell me the so what. Tell me what do I need to know. They didn't want to get bogged down in the how come. They wanted to focus on the how Two, they saw the how come or the why as superfluous information. They're like the guy who gets an error message on his computer and has no interest in finding out what the error message means. He just wants to do a search and get three easy steps to fix his computer. I know this because my computer failed last week and I didn't care why. I just wanted three easy steps to fixing it. And there were three easy steps, by the way, to fixing it. Kim, would you look at this? <laughs> Step one. Step two. Kim, what's the verdict? It's dead. Step three, will you order me a new computer? Yeah. Three easy steps. This happens in the church all the time. A couple comes in for marriage counseling, and they want three easy steps to fix their marriage. They're not interested in the whys that got them to this place. They're not interested in searching out the information on the error message to figure out why this happened to make sure it never happens again. They just want the how-to. How do we fix this problem? The husband doesn't want to spend time learning why he is to show sacrificial love to his wife. He just wants to know how to make her stop being so demanding. The wife isn't interested in why she's supposed to submit to her husband. She just wants to know how to make him do what she wants. 
<laughs> but in a God-glorifying relationship, you have to know the why. Because if you don't know the why, the how-to is very difficult to maintain. The same is true about the Christian life as a whole. Many people want how-to messages. In fact, how-to messages are very popular. How to be a better fill-in-the-blank. How to be a better husband. How to be a better wife. How to be a better parent. How to be a better employee. How to be a better whatever. They want to know how to be a successful parent. How to have a successful marriage. How to have three steps to peace. And while all those things are good and we want our people to know those things, we know without understanding the why, the how-to is ultimately meaningless. You give three steps on how to have a successful marriage, but you don't tell them the why these things are important, and again, they won't be maintained. They're certainly to fail. Paul understood this truth. That's why in most of his letters, he spends a significant portion of the letter explaining the why. He gives the theology before he gives the application. He says, these are things that are true, and here's why you need to know them, and then goes into the, what do you do with that information? Paul was convinced that you needed to know the theology before you could apply it to your life, and oftentimes that transition in the book from the the theology to the application is set off by the word, therefore. You would see the word therefore, and it always refers back to something that was just previously said. And Paul would often transition from the the doctrine to the practice with the word therefore. Paul was convinced that correct theology led to correct living. That doctrine and duty go hand in hand. That what we believe determines how we behave. That our learning guides our living. To put it in more practical terms, if we, want, if we have a right relationship with God, we can have a right relationship with others. 1 John 4.20 says, If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We need to have a right relationship with God in order to have right relationships with others. And if we don't have a right relationship with God, we won't have a right relationship with others. And if we say we love God, but we have hatred for someone else, John says we're liars. doesn't mean that we're never going to have conflict with someone just because we have a right relationship with God. In fact, we can guarantee we'll have conflict with people. But it does mean that when our relationship with God is right that our relationships with others have a much better chance of being successful because we are treating them with Christ-like love. For that reason, in the book of Romans, Paul spends 11 chapters, the first 11 chapters, giving us the theology behind our salvation. Eleven chapters of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, before he gets to the practical application. He'll spend eleven chapters in theology and then three and a half chapters on application. 
The theology is important. Eleven chapters of why before he gets us to the what now or the how to. So let me give you a summary of the why. And then I'm going to give you a how to. So let me give you the summary of the why. Romans chapter 1, the gospel is the power of God leading to salvation. Whereas unrighteousness invites God's wrath. God made himself known to man, but man rejected God and chose to follow his own lusts and degrading passions. Chapter 2, no one gets away with sin. Whether it is a Jew who has the law written on tablets of stone or it's a Gentile who has the law written on his heart. Everyone knows right from wrong. Everybody's born with a conscience that tells them what is right and what is wrong. Chapter 3. The law, whether on stone or on the heart, reveals sin. While righteousness comes through faith in Christ, we are justified by faith and not by law. Chapter 4. By way of example... Abraham was justified by faith and not by works of the law. Chapter 5. Christ's death is the means of our justification. It's the means of our salvation, the payment for our sin. Chapter 6. All people are slaves to something. Either slaves to sin and unrighteousness or slaves to God and righteousness. Chapter 7. The benefit of the law is it reveals the truth of our hearts, the sinful condition of our hearts, and thus our need for Christ. Chapter 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. God is at work in the lives of His children and He is going to conform each of us to the image of His Son and He is going to cause everything to work together for that end. Chapter 9. God is sovereign and His choice, though may seem unfair to some men, was always intended to bring salvation to both Jews and Gentiles. Chapter 10. All who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Israel began to trust in their heritage and their ability to keep the law outwardly, but their rejection of the gospel caused the shift of the focus of the Christians to give, their, give the gospel to the Gentiles, specifically Paul. Chapter 11. Israel's rejection of Christ was ultimately for the benefit of the Gentiles because Paul shifted his focus to the Gentiles. And when the time of the Gentiles is over, the Jews will be jealous of the Gentiles who received the Jewish Messiah and their hearts will be shifted back to the Messiah. And chapter 11 ends in verse 33 through 36 with this doxology Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and fathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who was first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. 
And then chapter 12 starts with the word, therefore. And that therefore refers back to everything he has said in the first 11 chapters. It refers back to, in light of all of this theology of our salvation, here's what you should do. The only logical response to everything God has done, everything that Paul has spelled out in the first 11 chapters, the only logical response for the Christian is to give ourselves completely to God, to give ourselves over body, mind, and will to God. A life completely given to God, characterized by love for God and love for others. To put it in a sentence, the most practical response to the doctrine of our salvation is to love God and to love others. Over the next three and a half chapters, Paul explains specifically what our relationships are to look like in light of our salvation. This morning we're going to focus on chapter 12, verses 9 through 21. And in this passage, God tells us how to love. How to love. Here's the practical application. Based on 11 chapters of theology, here's the general application. First, how to love in general. How to love in general. Verse 9 says, Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. He's told him in the, in the first eight verses, really the first two verses, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think. That'd be verse three again as well. Don't think more highly of yourself than you ought to think, but be humble and intentional in your exercise of your spiritual gifts. The first thing on the list, after telling us to use our gifts and not think so highly of ourselves, The first thing on the how-to is to love. It's going to give a list of things that we are to do, a list of characteristics that characterize a Christian based on the theology. And the first thing on the list is love. Love is to govern every relationship that we have. Whether it be with family, friends, neighbors, enemies, love is to be the governing Emotion, the governing exercise. The NAS says, let love be without hypocrisy. I think King James says the same thing. ESV gives it a positive spin, says, let love be genuine. Now, while that's a legitimate way to translate the Greek that is used here, Paul used the word hypocrite here, hypocrisy. Let love be without hypocrisy. In fact, the without hypocrisy uses the word hypocrisy and throws an an a on the front of it, and that negates it. That makes it a negative, like a theist is somebody who believes in God, but an atheist is somebody who doesn't believe in God. So the A, it, it negates the, it makes it a negative term. And the reason it's important here, or the reason the, the term, I, th- I like the translation without hypocrisy, is because of the words that Paul uses. The Greek word hypocrite here means literally an interpreter from underneath. An interpreter from underneath. And it was applied to the actors of the day. In Greek theater of that time, they wore the mask, the smiling mask and the frowning mask to 
determine their, their emotions, and they would speak lines from underneath the mask. So the word hypocrite became synonymous with actor. So you could translate the word actor, or you would translate it hypocrite or, or an interpreter from underneath. So Paul uses this word and says, let your love be without acting, without hypocrisy. So be genuine, be sincere, don't, don't pretend, don't be an actor, don't be wearing a mask when it comes to love. This world is full of people who act as if they love. They act like they love one another, they act like they love people, but in reality they're hypocrites. They're performers. They're putting on an act. In our society, the word love is thrown around so frivolously that it, so carelessly that it almost means nothing. I mean, there, there, there are game shows based on love. But the love that the Christian practices is, is to be a sincere, godly love. It's not an act. Hypocrisy has no place in the life of the Christian, because hypocrisy is the antithesis of genuine godly love. God's not pretending, God's not acting when he showed us his love. We are to show the love that's been so generously shown to us. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This was Paul's goal in everything. In fact, he told Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, 5, But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So Paul is telling Timothy, his protege, the one that is going to pick up where when Paul dies, it says the goal of all of our instruction is for you to love, to express love, and to do this sincerely without or with a good conscience. Love is primary. Love is more important than any spiritual gift. Love is more important than faith. Love is more important than hope. This is what 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 tell us. There's faith, there's hope, and there's love, but the greatest of these is love. And Paul goes on and says, if I have all the spiritual gifts in the world, but I don't have love, it's meaningless. Love is primary. To make sure we understand what he means, he adds two more phrases to drill down on the importance of love. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil or hate what is evil. It's a strong word here. It's a strong word. In fact, some parents want to teach their kids, you don't ever say hate. That's a a bad word. That's the word Paul uses here. You hate what is evil. It's not just hate like you hate green beans. Or hate like Michigan hates Ohio State. Or Dodgers hate Yankees. It literally means to hate bitterly or to have strong feelings of horror. It is to hate the way the Washington Post hates conservatives. You've never read the Washington Post, apparently. Don't bother. 
If you're going to read the Washington Post, you better read your Bible. That way you can know what both sides are doing. (laughs) We are to hate what is evil. Because what is evil is an enemy of God. Evil exists, or exalts rather, that which opposes God. Psalm 97 verse 10. Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the soul of his godly ones. He delivers them from the land of the wicked. Proverbs 8.13 The fear of the Lord is to hate evil, pride and arrogance in every evil way, and the perverted mouth I hate. I want you to notice in Proverbs 8.13 that Solomon paired evil with pride and arrogance in every evil way. The enemies of love. Pride and arrogance are the enemies of love. So is evil. So where our love is to be without hypocrisy, and in order to do that, we must hate what is evil. The counterpart to hating what is evil, cling to what is good. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are good things. You cling on to those things. When I said cling on, I don't mean, never mind. Hold on to those things. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is anything excellent and worthy, think on these things. We are inundated with evil. The media, social media, the world is inundating us with evil things. The bad the ugly, the wicked, the profane. And God says, in response to your salvation, you love without hypocrisy, you hate what is evil, and you cling to what is good. And our world has this ungodly agenda to take what is evil and make it seem good. And take what is good and make it seem evil. And we know that's true. We know because there are things that the Bible clearly calls sin that the world exalts to the point that if you don't think it's good, you're evil. If you speak out against homosexuality or gender identification, or anything like that, then you must be evil. That's what our world is saying. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 11-12 says, He must turn away from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears attend to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. If you love evil and hate what is good, you are putting yourself in opposition to God. Evil is subtle and it's often disguised as pleasure. And if we're not careful, we compromise a little here and we compromise a little there and we begin to justify our wickedness. The evil takes root and we choose to love evil rather than what is good. Our world continues to present evil as normal. And untrained Christians 
fall into this trap all the time. I can't tell you how many people I've seen, particularly millennials who, who claim to love God, who claim to be Christians, falling right in line with what the world is telling them they should think is good. And, and they end up exalting evil. In order to discern the difference between good and evil, we need to have a steady diet of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The only way for you and I to constantly discern good and evil is to know what God's word says. And to make sure that's what's informing us and that's what's feeding us. Psalm 119, 104, from your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. I will understand what is true and what is false, not by learning about false things, but by learning what is true from God's Word. As a matter of daily life, our love is to be sincere. It's to be authentic. It's to be without hypocrisy. We are to utterly hate evil, and we are to hold tight to what is good. From the general to the specific, how to love in church. Well, this is practical application if there ever was. How to love in church. Look at verse 10. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, persevering in tribulation, devoted to prayer, contributing to the needs of the saints, practicing hospitality. Paul gives us here ten obligations that we are to have toward each other. That brother and sister in Christ are to have to each other. The way that we are to treat fellow Christians. God makes it obvious that our Love for one another is an obligation as well as our greatest testimony. So in light of our great salvation, our love must be sincere and our love for one another must be obvious. Ten statements here. The first, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This speaks of family-like affection. It involves a tenderness in dealing with each other. You think of one another not as some person that comes to the same church, but you think of them as brothers and sisters. And brothers and sisters that you like, not the other brothers and sisters. In verse 9, Paul used agape when he spoke of love there. Here he uses the word phileo, and he uses the words interchangeably so we can't take some nuance of the definition and pigeonhole how we love. Well, i, I got to love you with brotherly love, but not with phileo, or not with agape love, or I have to love you with agape love, but not with phileo love. Paul is using them interchangeably. It's making it clear that we're to love. Jesus already told us in John 13, 35, that our love for one another proves that we're disciples. 
In 1 John 2, verses 9 and 10, he told us that if we hate our brother, we are in darkness, that is, we are unsaved, while the one who loves his brother is in the light, or saved. In 1 John 3, 14, he told us that we know we've passed from life or from death into life, that is, from unsaved to saved, because we love the brethren. In 1 John 4, 20, he told us that it's impossible to love God whom we've not seen if we do not love our brother whom we have seen. So this love for one another is crucial to our testimony that we are truly saved. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. That is, show care for one another. Give deference to one another. This idea of devotion is attention to one another. Now, anytime we talk about this, the natural tendency is for people to think of others that they show that kind of love to oh yeah i show i show brotherly love to so-and-so or to so-and-so and they think of all the people that they show brotherly love to i want to challenge you to think of the brothers and sisters in christ that you don't show brotherly love to because we're not qualified here to show brotherly love to those people whom you like or to those people whom you have other things in common with. Our commonality in Christ is sufficient. To add to that, number two, the second statement, give preference to one another in honor. Give preference to one another in honor. This speaks of humility. It is the practice of putting others ahead of ourselves. Considering them to be more important. This is what Paul said in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is not flattery. This is not false praise. Paul's not telling us here, hey, you need to go around and massage egos. Pretend that people are more important than you. You ever had those people who compliment you? And when they did... you, they sounded like the proverbial used car salesman. Uh, not really sure. There's a word for that, psychophant. Just a flatterer. That's not what we're called to be. If somebody ever comes up to me and tells me that I'm a wonderful singer, I'll know they're lying. <laughs> or deaf. One of the two. Paul's not telling us, you say things that just puff one another up. He began the whole section with, let love be without hypocrisy. So we're not just to do things to make people feel good about themselves. We're to avoid hypocrisy. Speaking of genuine affection for one another. We are to consider the eternal value of one another and the the importance to God. And how we treat them. The the result of true affection for each other is to give honor to one another. Literally, to try to outdo others in showing honor. Trying to outdo the other in showing respect. Number three. Not lagging behind in diligence. Literally, don't be lazy. And in the context, don't be lazy in the way you love. It's not enough just to 
smile or give them one of these. It requires some effort. To love one another requires action. Number four, be fervent in spirit. As opposed to being lazy, we are to be fervent in spirit. The word there, fervent, literally means to boil. It's a word that was used for boiling water. This water is bubbling up. We are to be enthusiastic in our love for one another. The fifth, listen to this, serving the Lord. And the context and, and how this fits together, the serving of the Lord is consider the way you love as your service to the Lord. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When you love one another, you do this as service to the Lord. It's, it is serving one another, and we are called to do that, but here Paul is saying this is serving the Lord. So if you want to say, hey, I'm a servant of the Lord, that requires you to love one another. And by the way, the word serving here is the word doulos. It means slave. As being a slave to the Lord. The slave's sole purpose in life is to do what his master commands him to do. We are to love one another as if we love the command to do it. Because that's what our master wants us to do. Sixth, rejoicing in hope. Rejoicing in hope. Thankfully, this world is not all there is. If it is, then we would quickly lose hope. But our hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We have a hope beyond this world. And we have a hope for one another. In the, in the lengthy definition of love in 1 Corinthians 15, it ends with love hopes all things. In the last three definitions, love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things. We rejoice in hope. In hope for one another. In hope of repentance if that's what's needed. In hope of growth if that's what's needed. In hope of, of them learning to love one another. Our hope isn't in this world, it's in Christ. Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul had already said this, the hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who is given to us. The seventh phrase, persevering in tribulation. We don't quit when things get hard. We don't quit when people turn against us. We don't stop loving because we didn't get the response that we were looking for. We have the assurance from Romans chapter 8 verse 35 that nothing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ. And our faith will be tried and, and God will use all of these things to conform us to the image of Christ. We persevere. All the tribulation does when we respond correctly is purify us. 
Eighth, devoted to prayer. Never forgetting that we're dependent upon God for everything, including our ability to love one another. You can't do this apart from God. You can't love one another the way you're supposed to apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. You try to do it in your flesh, you can do it for a little while, but you become a hypocrite because you'll be faking. If the lifeblood... If love is the lifeblood that pumps through the veins of the Christian, then prayer is the oxygen that fills our lungs. Nine, contributing to the needs of the saints. Noticing and meeting needs. Sacrificing the need to meet the needs of others. This is how the early church lived. You read the early chapters of Acts and you see the church going to great lengths of sacrifice to meet the needs of others so that they could learn, they could live there in Jerusalem and learn and grow in Christ. We see in the epistles in the later chapters of Acts that the churches of Asia Minor took up an offering and sacrificed greatly to to supply the needs for the church in Jerusalem. It's the kind of care and camaraderie that bears witness to the world that we are the children of God. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you have love for one another. That includes meeting needs. God has blessed our church with you folks as very generous people. And if there is a need in our church that goes unmet, it's because we didn't know about it. Or they, person just reluctant to ask or tell us about it because we meet needs and you all have been extremely generous Our benevolence fund has never been so healthy. Number 10, practicing hospitality. Literally, it means to be fond of strangers. It had the original idea of providing food and lodging for traveling Christians. This is before hotels that were safe uh, and the, the... frequency of those things so a visitor would be making their way from one part of the country to another they pass through your town and you would invite them in and you would feed them and you would shelter them for the night while our cultures may be different the need for hospitality certainly hasn't changed we still show kindness the same way often by bringing a meal to people it's another thing we do really well in this church when there's a need we set that out there and before long people are getting all kinds of lasagnas (laughs) you know we can I I would encourage you to to make effort to invite people to your home doesn't have to be fancy just invite a few people a couple families over Every, every once a month invite a couple different people over and just share a meal get to know people Some of my fondest memories in ministry are times of fellowship. Having a meal with people, playing games, just getting to know people, having conversations. Our love for one another is to be obvious and is to be active and is to be sincere. But how about when people don't return love for us? Rather, they make trouble for us. Well, that's number three, how to love in the world. How to love in the world. We're going to have to fly through this pretty quickly here. Verse 14, 
Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. It's important to remember when Paul was writing this, he was writing to the people who lived in Rome under Nero. Christians were persecuted, were put to death, were burned in Nero's garden. Nero would eventually light Rome on fire and blame it on the Christians. Christians were treated terribly in Rome. And Paul says, do not, or, but bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. You can't do that apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Listen, we all know, and I'm just as guilty, it's easy to curse those in political power who do things that we don't like or we disagree with when what we should be doing is having prayer meetings for them. That's what we should be doing. The proper way to love the world is to bless those who persecute you. This is what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verses 45, 44 and 45. Jesus said, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and on the unrighteous. In other words, emulate your father who is in heaven who treats everybody the same. Who shows love for everyone, even those who hate him. Bless and do not curse. Verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Have empathy for one another. Don't just stand back as a disinterested party. And certainly don't rejoice at their suffering. Oh, folks, that that should never be true of a Christian. To see someone else suffering and think to yourself or say, they got what they deserve. Just be thankful you don't get what you deserve. Be thankful for grace and mercy. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. You know, when your child does something, no matter how globally insignificant it is, you always seem to be happy and applaud. I know this because I've been to piano recitals that the kid butchered the song so bad you couldn't tell what it was and the parents were leading the applause. So good! So good! That one note was so good! Listen, that's, we need to rejoice with those who rejoice. And just as important and much harder is to weep with those who weep. Because that's an investment emotionally. And that's difficult and it's exhausting. And in the context here, Paul is most likely referring to non-Christians. Verse 16, be of the same mind toward one another. That is, don't show partiality. Philippians 2.2, Paul said, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. In Romans 15.5, he'll say, now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus. That is, think the same. Don't show partiality. Don't exalt one person while you're ripping down another. 
Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. That is, don't be proud. Don't be proud. Look back in verse 13, or verse 3 of Romans chapter 12. For through the grace given to me, I say among you that not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted each a measure of faith. Have a realistic view of who you are and you won't ever be proud. Do not be wise in your own estimation. That is, don't be conceited. Don't think, you know what, I'm pretty smart, I'm pretty cool, I'm pretty whatever. Don't be wise in your own eyes. Verse 17, never pay back evil for evil to anyone. The Old Testament concept was an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, and a foot for a foot. The New Testament concept is never pay back evil for evil. In fact, 1 Peter 3, 8, 9 says, To sum up, all of you be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, humble in spirit, not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called for this very purpose, that you might inherit a blessing. Rather than cursing those who curse, we bless them instead. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. Respect what is good and honest, what is beautiful, noble, honorable. Verse 18, if it is possible, as far as depends on you, live at peace with all men. Do what you can to live at peace with all men. I want you to notice it does not say as much as it depends on the other person, you live in peace with all men. As much as it depends on you. And sometimes we give up pretty quick. Well, I tried. They rejected me, so. As much as it depends on you, you live at peace with all men. You keep striving until it's obvious that they will not let you live in peace with them. In verse 19, never take your own vengeance, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Like David, who refused to take vengeance on Saul, even though Saul tried to kill him multiple times, when David had the opportunity, he said, I'm not going to do it. I won't put my hand against God's anointed. I'll let God deal with that. Related to that, chapter 12, verse 20. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire or burning coals on his head. That's a quote from Proverbs 25. This is how we're to treat the enemy. We see him hungry, we feed him. We see him thirsty, we give him something to drink. In fact, in the, in the final judgment, when God separates the sheep from the goats, to the sheep he'll say, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me something to drink, and so on. And they're going to say, when did we ever see you hungry or thirsty or any need and meet it? And he'll say, when you did it to the least of these, my brother, and you did it to me. And to the goats he'll say, when I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was thirsty, you didn't give me anything to drink, and so on. And, and they'll ask, well, when did we see you in need and not meet that need? And he'll say, when you didn't. Do it to the least of my brethren. And finally, in verse 21, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Don't let the evil of this world overcome you. Instead, you battle the wickedness of this world with righteousness. You battle the evil in this world with what God says is good. 
We are called to live at the highest level. We are called to love at the deepest level. We are called to be examples to one another, to provide a testimony to this unsaved world. The reason he tells us how to love people who persecute us is so that we can show them Christ. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples when you love one another. And by the way, while you're doing that, you love your enemies. Our Christian life is not to be lived in secret. It's to be lived as an open book for everyone else to read so that they can see Christ. And the way that we love one another and the way that we love the world shows them Christ. There's no better way. You can get a t-shirt that has a fish on it. You can walk around with a, a sandwich board that says... Christ is coming. But the greatest testimony that you can have in this world is to love one another. The most practical application of our theology is to love God and to love one another. There's no more practical application of what, for what God has done for us but to love Him and to love one another. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you love us. Thankful, Father, that you showed us that love with the sacrificial death of your Son. Father, we are so unworthy of such love. And we pray that you would show us how we can continue to show that love for others. Father, not just for those select few that it's easy to love, but Father, for everyone, that we would, we would have true testimonies to this world, that we know you, that we are your disciples. And Father, may you glorify yourself as we seek to emulate Christ in the way that we love. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.